It's my joy to be with you this evening. I apologize for the very late notice. I came here to speak with imaging scientists who are coming to Sinai six weeks, six days after I return in order to help us photograph the manuscripts. And the original plan was to have meetings Thursday and Friday. And then one of them had other obligations today. And so he said, let's put in very long hours Wednesday and Thursday. And I didn't know conclusively until Thursday night that I would be free today, and it's my joy to be with you here. Uh, I've been fascinated for a long time about the tabernacle. What was it in the Old Testament? What did it become in the New Testament? What did it become in Christian hymns and homilies? And so I put together a brief presentation on the tabernacle, and that's what I would like to share with you this evening. It's called... Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, Sinai as past and future hope. The book of Exodus is the story of Moses. We read how, at a time of danger, his mother made an ark of bulrushes and set him adrift on the Nile, and how he was drawn out of the water by the daughter of Pharaoh. He lived in the palace, a prince of Egypt, surrounded by wealth and power. But coming to learn that he was Hebrew, he chose to identify himself with his own people. In time, he was forced to flee into the wilderness. He came to the land of Midian, a harsh desert where it is difficult to find food and water to sustain life. There he met Jethro, the priest of Midian, and married his daughter Zipporah. When a son was born to them, he named him Gershom, saying, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Did it seem to Moses that things had turned out the opposite of what he had wanted? Out of a desire to help his people, he had been forced to flee from them. From having been in a position of high authority in the land of Egypt, he now found himself living in a tent, scant protection against the strong winds and cold rains that blow through the Sinai every winter. But all of this was in the providence of God, who was preparing Moses to become the great prophet and the deliverer of his people. As a child, I read this story in the Bible, and not just any Bible, but in the King James Version. I read all about Nops and Tachys and Habergians. It was a magical world. If it is increasingly rare to find young people today who read the King James Bible, Certainly we all know the story of how Moses delivered his people from bondage and brought them to Sinai, the holy mount, where God had first appeared to him in the burning bush. <clears throat> On the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud. Moses ascended to the peak of Sinai and was there forty days and forty nights. There he received not only the Ten Commandments, but the inspiration of the whole law. There also the tabernacle was revealed to him. There are many illuminations of the prophet Moses, the Exodus, and the tabernacle in Sinai Greek 1186, an 11th century manuscript of the Christian topography by Cosmos Indicoplastis. This manuscript was written and illuminated in Cappadocia, in the center of Asia Minor, the homeland in the 4th century of St. Basil, St. Gregory the Theologian, and St. Gregory of Nyssa, and known subsequently for its many churches and monasteries. 
I was recently able to photograph this manuscript in its entirety. The illuminations can help us visualize the tabernacle as we seek to understand something of its history and significance. What was the tabernacle of old? What did it mean to the children of Israel? What has been its continuing significance? God commanded Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, according to all that I shew thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. There was to be an outer enclosure where sacrifices and offerings were made. Within this was the tabernacle itself, which had two chambers. The first contained the seven-branch candlestick and the table of the shewbread. Beyond this was the Holy of Holies. Here rested the Ark of the Covenant, which was made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold both within and without. It contained the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, a golden urn that held manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. Over the ark were two cherubim facing each other, forming a mercy seat with their wings. God said to Moses, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony. These objects were made by Bezaleel and Aholiab, according as God had commanded. When they had been completed, it is recorded that a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Josephus writes that Moses went no more up to Mount Sinai, but he went into the tabernacle and brought back answers from God for what he prayed for. The children of Israel carried the ark with them during the 40-year sojourn in the wilderness. <coughs> it was in Shiloh that Samuel ministered before the Lord. When Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, he followed the same pattern of the tabernacle that had been revealed to Moses, and there the ark of the covenant was enshrined. We know that the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., it is recorded in the second book of Maccabees that the prophet Jeremiah, being warned by God, took the ark and went forth into the mountain where Moses climbed up and saw the heritage of God. There he found a hollow cave where he enclosed the ark. We read, As for that place, it shall be unknown until the time that God gather his people again together and receive them unto mercy. When Joshua succeeded Moses as the leader of the children of Israel, God said to him, As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. When they came to the river Jordan, the waters parted before them, even as the Red Sea had parted before them at the time of Moses. This also happened at the same time of year as the exodus from Egypt. For the crossing of the Jordan took place on the tenth day of the first month, and on the fourteenth, the appointed day, they kept the Pascha, the Passover. The crossing of the River Jordan is thus seen as a new exodus. When they were encamped at Gilgal, an angel appeared to Joshua and said, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place wherein thou standest is holy. 
These are the words that Moses heard at the burning bush on Sinai. And all of this he is thus seen as a new Moses. An appeal is made to the earlier Exodus and to Moses as a way of illuminating the significance of the new Exodus and the new leader Joshua. The new Exodus and the new leader take on a special significance precisely because of this correlation. There are many such patterns that could be identified in the Holy Scriptures. The earlier event, person or place, is said to be a type of the later event, person or place, from the Greek word typos, meaning prototype, pattern or figure. When two events are thus correlated, it is said that a typology is established between them. The later event will never be precisely identical with the earlier to which the appeal is made. But the correlation is sought as a way of adapting or interpreting the present experience by means of the older event, person, or place, and thus celebrating the new event and revealing the providential continuity in the historical experience. Typologies do not always link earlier events with present experience. The prophets of Israel also invoked these same correlations in speaking of future hopes. The prophet Hosea recalled the sojourn in the wilderness with longing. It had been a time when God was close to his people. Again, God would bring Israel into the wilderness where the covenantal alliance had been re-consecrated as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. The prophet Micah writes that God will again show marvelous things according to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt. These typologies reach a certain culmination in the prophecies of Isaiah. The return from captivity to Zion is seen as a new exodus, and the first is invoked for the mighty acts of God that took place at that time. In eschatological vision, the prophet Isaiah also sees the conversion of the nations who will be a part of this new exodus to Zion, and there the establishment of a universal messianic kingdom. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. And there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. Art thou not it which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over? Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come again with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. In the wilderness God made a covenant with his people. There they had gathered around the tabernacle, and God had dwelt tangibly in their midst. This was the emblem of past hope, to which the prophets of old returned again and again. Christians inherited these prophecies and these hopes. 
In the New Testament, we read of a constant appeal to the Old Testament types as a way of grasping the significance of contemporary events. Christ himself said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In the Gospel of St. Luke, when the disciples are troubled and confused by the events of Christ's death and reports of his resurrection, it is the risen Christ himself who appears to them and reminds them that in the scriptures they hold the key to understanding these events. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures. In some of the earliest epistles of the Apostle Paul, this typology is already highly developed. Adam is the type, the typos, of him that was to come. Christ is the new Adam, restoring life to the world by his resurrection. The children of Israel passed through the sea, and in the wilderness they ate manna and drank water that sprang forth from the rock. These are types of Christian baptism and of spiritual food and drink. The defining moment for the children of Israel is here being invoked as a paradigm of the Christian life. This approach to the scriptures was stated most succinctly by the Apostle Paul. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the scriptures. The scriptures referred to here are, of course, the Old Testament. They are to be understood in a whole new way in the light of the events that have happened to Christ. Although this reading was new, yet the process was not. The apostles were doing what Israel had always done, understanding the present by means of the past, and so establishing a typological relationship between past and present. How did Christians come to understand the rites and vessels of the tabernacle as types fulfilled in Christ. Under the Mosaic law, priests within the tabernacle offered up sacrifices, a propitiatory shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The earthly tabernacle was a reflection of the tabernacle in heaven that God had revealed to Moses. It was the example and shadow of heavenly things. For God had commanded Moses, See that thou make all things according to the pattern shewed to thee in the mount. Jesus became our high priest, not according to the Levitical priesthood, but after the order of Melchizedek who was both priest and king. He entered into the true tabernacle in the heavens, and there offered up himself as a propitiatory sacrifice. 
He is now seated on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Early in the second century, Justin Martyr extended this typology. The high priest wore an ephod, a robe that was embroidered about the hem with pomegranates in blue and scarlet and purple. Between each pomegranate there hung a bell of pure gold. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies. When he came out, even before the people saw him, they would hear the bells, and the sound would reassure them that God had forgiven them for yet another year. Justin Martyr saw the bells as types of the apostles, who witnessed to the presence of Christ. He writes, Moreover, the prescription that twelve bells be attached to the robe of the high priest, which hung down to the feet, was a symbol of the twelve apostles, who depend on the power of Christ, the eternal priest, and through their voice it is that all the earth has been filled with the glory and grace of God and of his Christ. The epistle to the Hebrews goes on to name the various objects that were within the tabernacle. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the shewbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold. Therein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. In writing, of which we cannot now speak particularly, the author hints that to enter into the significance of each object would have required a long discourse. For these were not physical objects only, as St. John Chrysostom points out, but they were also certain enigmata, as he calls them, the word that means figures, types, symbols, signs. It remained to later writers to search out the significance of these objects. The tabernacle was created as a dwelling place of God, for God had said to Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The word for tabernacle in Greek is skini, and this is the word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. We hear an echo of this when St. John writes, Geologos sarx egeneto ge eskinosen enimin, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, or more literally, tabernacled among us. Thus, in the very scriptures, we see the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, as a foreshadowing of the Incarnation. Leontius of Byzantium, who flourished during the 6th century, quotes a passage of Irenaeus that has not otherwise survived, which makes this same analogy. He writes, For as the ark was gilded within and without with pure gold, so was also the body of Christ pure and resplendent. For it was adorned within by the word, and shielded without by the spirit, in order that from both materials the splendor of the natures might be clearly shown forth. 
One of the most extensive Christian commentaries on the tabernacle is to be found in Gregory of Nyssa's Life of Moses. God revealed to Moses the pattern of the tabernacle and commanded him to make the same upon earth. In this, Gregory of Nyssa sees a type of Christ. What we say is, of course, not obscure to those who have accurately received the mystery of our faith. For there is one thing out of all others which both existed before the ages and came into being at the end of the ages. It did not need a temporal beginning. For how could what was before all times and ages be in need of a temporal origin? But for our sakes, who had lost our existence through our thoughtlessness, it consented to be born like us, so that it might bring that which had left reality back again to reality. This was the only begotten God, who encompassed everything in himself, but who also pitched his own tabernacle among us. Having established this, St. Gregory sees each object within the tabernacle as a type of Christ. The veil signifies the flesh of Christ, as we read in the epistle to the Hebrews, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. The skins dyed scarlet are emblems of the passion. The pillars and lights indicate the apostles, teachers, and prophets of the church. But in orthodox hymns and sermons, the imagery of the tabernacle could be said to come into its own as types of the all-holy Theotokos, the Virgin Mary, she who became the dwelling place of God. She is the ark, made golden both within and without by the Holy Spirit, containing within herself the word of God. She is the lampstand, bearing Christ, the light of the world, the table for the shewbread, the loaves of offering, the golden vessel that held manna, spiritual food for the faithful. She is the mercy seat over the ark between the two cherubims. She is the rod of Aaron that miraculously blossomed, bloomed blossoms and bore fruit, the golden censer holding within herself the live coal of divinity, the bush burning with fire, the Godhead, yet remaining unconsumed by the flames. We find examples of this typology also in Gregory of Nyssa. The bush burned with fire, but was not consumed by the flames. He writes, From this we learn also the mystery of the Virgin, the light of divinity which through birth shone from her into human life, did not consume the burning bush, even as the flower of her virginity was not withered by giving birth. The manna is also a type of the Virgin. Neither plowing nor sowing produced the body of this bread, but the earth which remained unchanged was found full of this divine food of which the hungry partake. This miracle teaches, in anticipation, the mystery of the Virgin. In the sixth century, St. Romanos the Melodus composed an Akathis hymn to the Most Holy Theotokos, in which there are many refrains addressed to her, even as the salutations of the Archangel Gabriel. The poem contains these verses. Rejoice, tabernacle of God, the Word. Rejoice, Holy One, holier than the holies. Rejoice, ark made golden by the Spirit. In the 8th century, St. John of Damascus gave a homily on the nativity of the all-holy Theotokos, in which he said, 
summit more holy than Sinai, which is covered not by smoke, nor shadow, nor tempest, nor fearful fire, but by the shining illumination of the All-Holy Spirit. For there the Word of God wrote a law on tablets of stone, using the Spirit as a finger. But in this virgin, the Word himself has been made flesh by the action of the Holy Spirit and by her blood, and he has given himself to our nature as the most efficacious medicine of salvation. There it was manna. Here the one who gave the sweetness of manna is contained in her. Let the celebrated tabernacle which Moses constructed in the desert with all manner of very precious materials and the tabernacle of the patriarch Abraham before that give way to the living and rational tabernacle of God. For she was the receptacle, not just of the activity of God, but essentially of the hypostasis of the Son of God. Let a tabernacle that was entirely covered with gold recognize that I cannot compare with her, along with a golden jar which contained manna, a lampstand, a table, and all the other objects from long ago. For they have been honored as her types, as shadows of a true archetype. And in the same century, Germanos, the patriarch of Constantinople, delivered a sermon on the Annunciation, in which he took up the salutations of the Archangel Gabriel. Hail, favored one, ark of the sanctuary, and divinely planted rod of righteousness, which flowered with a genuine flower. Hail, favored one, the golden lampstand bearing a bowl and shining tabernacle, and table which contained in itself the life-giving bread. Hail, favored one, the cherubic and most strange seat of the King of Glory, and truly an imperial palace for the flesh of the Word. Hail, favored one, the all-gold jar of manna, and the tabernacle truly made of purple, which the new Bezalel adorned in golden style. There are literally hundreds of hymns in the Orthodox Church that employ this same imagery. This hymn is chanted in the service to Moses, the God-seer. Moses wrote of the beforehand as a golden vessel, and the tablets on the table, O all-blameless one, and as a bush wholly unconsumed by fire, O maiden. Therefore now, beholding the fullness with faith, we piously glorify the Theotokos, who gave birth to the God of all. In the 14th century, John Cucuzales composed the following hymn, set to a very elaborate and protracted melody. It is chanted during the vesting of the bishop in the celebration of a hierarchical liturgy. Long ago, prophets foretold thee as a golden vessel, the staff, the tablets, the ark, the lampstand, the table, the mountain unhewn, the golden censer, the gate impassable, the throne of the king, thus did prophets foretell. The mountain unhewn is a reference to the prophecy of Daniel. The stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and the gate impassable to the prophecy of Ezekiel. Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it, therefore it shall be shut. Both passages are understood as prophecies of the virgin birth. A Byzantine manuscript of the Christian topography by Cosmos and Nicoplastes 
dating from the 11th century, contained a series of illuminations depicting the Virgin Mary as the personification of the vessels of the tabernacle. This manuscript belonged to the evangelical school at Smyrna. Tragically, it perished in the destruction of Smyrna in 1922. But it had been studied before by Joseph Strigowski, who published a description with photographs of the illuminations in Leipzig in 1899. The first of these depicts the all-holy Theotokos enthroned. She supports Christ on her right hand, and then he in turn looks up to her. The illumination is titled Iskini, the tabernacle. And below this we read the verse, And look that thou make them after their pattern which was shewed thee in the mount. The second illumination is titled Itrapiza, the table. The Virgin Mary is again seated upon a throne with a back and bolster and footstool. The throne is placed between inlaid columns. She inclines her head to the right and gazes at the child. To either side of her are nomina sacra, medir theo, the mother of God. Above is a paraphrase of a passage in the Christian topography. The table is a type of the earth, while the bread is its fruits. The crown signifies the land surrounded by the ocean, and thither is paradise. The third illumination is titled the Eptakavlos Lichnia, the seven-branch candlestick. The candlestick is surmounted by the Virgin and Christ Child seated upon a throne which is without back or canopy. 